0: Hi, I'm Shalushi Baxi-Ritchie. And I'm Kosha Baxi-Karstens. We are sisters and best friends who grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were really loved. We had a lot of friends, but we never felt like we fully fit in. We started to realize that there's probably a lot of other people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was a seed for this podcast.
1: Then during the 2020 election, We watched now Vice President Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence and we got inspired. We want to hear, share and amplify the voices of all Americans who
0: have felt othered. We wanna give everyone a platform to reclaim their power and their place by standing up and saying, I am speaking. So today we are joined by one of Kosha's high school friends. This is the season for talking to Kosha's high school friends, apparently. Uh, We've said that a lot.
1: One of Kosha's high school friends. Yeah,
0: yeah. Her name is Michelle Lamour and she is a burlesque dancer and a sexuality educator, uh, currently located in Las Vegas, but lived in Los Angeles for a number of years and originally from Chicago. And talking to her was so great. I mean, my friends, uh, if those of you who are listening will know that this season is like so exciting for me because there's so much talk about sexuality and sensuality and gender identity and sexual orientation and how all of that fits into like body autonomy and reproductive rights and justice is like, I'm just like so vibing on it. But I think both of us learned so much and there were so many just brilliant nuggets of wisdom in what Michelle had to say.
1: Absolutely. And I think that, you know, what's what's really cool for me is remembering her. And she talks about this. Um, she suffers from alopecia. So she was always very um self-conscious and insecure. Um, she was very quiet and shy when she was a kid, when I knew her in high school, and to see her transformation, which you know, she talks about the confidence cannot be tied to our bodies. And I think that is, that was like a moment of like, an aha moment for me is, you know, like what, so people tie their confidence to um, their physique or their hair or, you know, their makeup game or something. But like, if all of that goes away, we still can find confidence and truth and love for ourselves and in ourselves. And I think that where she's going, so she started as a burlesque dancer and now, you know, with her coaching and her education platforms, where she's going is truly like the the next exploration of sexuality and just what it means to be in and present in your body.
0: Yeah. And I think that is you know, for those people who might be like, oh, I don't wanna to listen to someone talk about like, their the, their, like sexuality workshops. Her message is so much bigger than, you know, get comfortable with your body so that you can have an orgasm. It's about being present in your skin every day. Not just, you know, not just making peace with your past, but really embracing and being whole. Of all the things that you like and maybe don't love about yourself, but they're part of you. And therefore they deserve your love as well. Um, and that moving forward, I think she's also, you know, like like you said, Kosha, advocating on a much bigger platform, not just about sexuality, but about body positivity in the best way. Not, you know, then not just like, oh, every everybody's a bikini body, but everybody is worth your love, your generosity, your gentleness, um, and your acceptance, and that she's also taking that message into the film industry, which is also so cool. Oh yeah,
1: that's going to be, like, when you hear about what she's working on, I think that's, that, I was like, first of all, I didn't know that existed, and secondly, absolutely that's needed, and she's yeah. perfect for it. Um, yeah, and so just to, to give a little disclaimer, there are some uh, what's the word shall she? Uh, there are some explicit there are some explicit, words, are some explicit yeah. words that we use. First of all, we use the real words for anatomy, uh, both male and female anatomy, but also but we also we also use some
0: slang words right, for those things.
1: But what I challenge people to do is don't cringe, don't turn away, don't you know mute because she shares with us the name of one of her classes. Um, and I want people to actually listen to what the class name means. And don't just take it yeah. as shock value, but she explains, what the name of the class means. And I think that just speaks to her message. Um, But there is a disclaimer in here that, yes, there are some uh, explicit words. We're not going to call them naughty words. We're just going to say they're explicit. So be aware. Other than that, I think I cannot, I'm going to have, we want to have her back a thousand times. Mm -hmm. Um, And she has several projects going on. She has a podcast called Look Down There, which I, uh, encourage everybody to take a, you know, to take a listen to and just enjoy Michelle L'Amour is speaking because she is speaking.
2: Okay.
1: So, uh, Michelle, thank you so much for agreeing to be on and yeah. especially like, she's like, what am I talking about again? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you have followed like any of the I Am Speaking stuff with the podcast or if Anne-Marie has told you, if Anne's told you anything, um, but what we did right after the election, r- really right around the election, Shayla, she Shay and I were talking about, you know, like what is a way to kind of just put our stamp on the world and be like, this is now important. Things are changing. We need, we need them to keep changing um activism comes in a lot of different forms and i had suggested i'm like what about this podcast that is after it, it's kind of sp- about like taking back your power taking back your place mm-hmm. and it you know the whole idea of like kamala harris at that vp debate saying like i'm speaking excuse me to the old white man right like who's just trying to talk over her and saying like i'm speaking and um so we wanted to give voices back to really the othered, the people who have just been othered, who have been shushed, who have been, you know, not given a place at the table. And then and then where you where we wanted to really speak with you is Anne Marie was telling us that you teach so I knew you've been a burlesque dancer for a while. And I have it was it, it wasn't X Factor, it was America's Got Talent. Yeah. And who was the judge who was like, no. Brandy, which is
2: surprising as like a woman of color and like someone who's used her sexuality as like she it was real, like off camera, like that was real, you know, like, I believe believe that that. like she was not nice.
1: Oh, (laughs) I see. Wow. Yeah. So I knew I know you've been like, I've known Michelle L'Amour and I know uh, that you've been a burlesque dancer. But then Anne said, like, you're teaching these classes and it's about like getting now once you have identified yourself, how to feel the most comfortable in your skin, being connected to yourself, saying like, I have a vagina, I have a penis. And like, what do we do with it? And how do, and that just like, (laughs) you know, I, it's a receptacle for a penis to be penetrating, but like, there's so much more about sexuality and sensuality. So, you know, you had asked, and I think this is not just talking to people who represent those identities, but also people who have, this
0: is, this is an expert interview. I mean, you obviously represent some part of the gender and sexuality spectra, right? Like you have your own gender identity and your own sexual identity. And rather than talking about that, I think this, like, it would be great to focus on sort of like your work as an educator, Mm -hmm. um, how that connects to your you know, your work as a dancer, like where you see the connections. Um, and what have you learned from both of those that could help our listeners? Yeah. Um. You know, so like, what lessons would you, you know, what do you teach? Not specifically, obviously, if people want that, they should sign up for your classes. We're not giving away for free here. Yeah. Like, what what do you focus on? What are the topics that you focus on in your classes? Or like, what have been surprising things that you like would think listeners would be like, oh, these are the, you know, top five questions I get or people are surprised to hear this or, you know, most men don't know where the clitoris is or, you know, just, I mean, I'm also not surprised by that, but.
2: (laughs) I mean, it's really not hard to find. It's really not. Like you play how, like PlayStation, how many buttons are on that? Like, come on, you know? I know. It's up, down, up, down, A, B, A, B, plus, minus, whatever the fuck. Like, come on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But can you do you want to start with like talking about your journey with your sexuality with yeah. with becoming a dancer and you know how you kind of got there because last i knew you we both were very different people.
2: <laughs> yes, we were.
0: Well, of course you do want to do the intro first and then we'll launch into it. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm like already like what's going on since you turned 18. Um so the one <laughs> thing that we <laughs>
2: Hi, my name is Michelle Amor, and I am speaking.
0: Welcome. Thank
2: you for being here.
0: Yeah, we're so excited. This is another episode where we get to talk to uh, one of Kosha's high school friends. So (laughs) this this season is full of Kosha's high school friends.
1: Last season was full of your friends, Shea. So I do have friends, for the record.
0: Yeah. So Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Um, For those of you who are tuning in. Um, hopefully it's everyone. Michelle is both a burlesque dancer and also runs sexuality education workshops. Um, and we're going to explore with her today a little bit more from less about her her gender and sexuality identities and more about what her professional experiences have taught her and what the lessons and the wisdom that she can impart from her work. Um, but we're going to start with me asking her the question, Michelle, could you share with us sort of your journey from when you knew Kosha in high school? Let's say you graduate, you throw your cap in the air, you go off, you do whatever you're gonna do to where you are now.
2: Yeah. so I knew Kosha um, back, well, we graduated class of 98, right? Back in a suburban Chicago school. Um, and we played orchestra together, violin specifically. Um, It was during that time that I began dancing. So I started dancing when I was 15. uh, So it was like maybe sophomore year or something like that. Were you an orcasus? I was an orcasus and I was an (laughs) eaglet. I didn't know you were an
1: eaglet. I I do remember you being an orcasus, which she was the dance, like the, not the cheer side, but like the actual just dance troupe.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I I started dancing when I was 15, and then I joined um, Orcasis junior and senior year, and then I made it as an eagle at my senior year, which to me was a big coup. And the reason being is that, I mean, you probably remember this, um, but I have alopecia. So I was missing a lot of hair, had really patchy hair, got made fun of, a lot so I wasn't when you think of like a palm dancer you know you don't think of the girl with alopecia um who plays a violin in the orchestra right yeah (laughs) yeah so to me I was like yeah you know I did it I I have a skill that's that's transcending whatever I look like right so even though I loved music, I loved dancing. So dancing was my obsession when I started that. And truly, it was the first thing that made me feel beautiful. It was the first time where I felt that way and didn't feel, you know, I know this podcast is all about being othered, but I felt very othered um, because I didn't, I didn't look the part, right? So that was the first time where I felt in my body the potential that I possessed, so that's why movement is very important to me. Um, but you know, throughout high school, I was always very interested in in the, these two questions, and I am still interested in these two questions: what makes something sexy and what makes something beautiful. Because those were things that I had to answer for myself, and in trying to answer these things for myself, I would stand in the mirror and I would get very close to the mirror and I would look at my face and I would look at my eyes. And I would do a lot of mirror gazing and I would pose in front of the mirror naked and I would do all these things that I thought were sexy and try to figure out how to take clothes off in a certain way. Like little did I know that only a few years later this would be my full-time job. <laughs> I had no clue what I was doing. Yeah, it was yeah. just like very prophetic and um, you know, when I look back, I'm like, oh, obviously, right? You have those moments where you're like, why am I doing this? Oh, yeah, because I'm supposed to be. Um, but I ended up going to college for finance. So I went to U of I in Champaign-Urbana and got a degree in finance. And, um, you know, was trying to to appease a lot of people. I was I was trying to do the good girl thing, get the real job kind of thing. And, um, you know, it didn't really, didn't really sit with me. I tried. I did my best. Uh, September 11 hit when I was in senior year of college and, you know, studying finance, it's a bad time. It's a bad time for finance, bad time to try to get a job. And the thing that, that changed for me when I, got home and watched this footage over and over again and just shock and despair and horror um, was the realization that our lives are way too short and do I want to spend my life doing something that makes others happy or do I want to do something that makes me happy and shortly after that I left the boyfriend that I was with I and that was, you know, that was traumatic because I was also kicked out of the house uh, and disowned from the family. And like, so I didn't really have anybody or any, anywhere to really turn. From your family? From my family. Yes. And that was, it's actually happened twice. You know, that's really hard to like make sense of because your family are, are supposed to be the people who are obligated to love you. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, Yeah, you know, and it was very confusing because uh, I was a really great student. I worked through high school, um, lots of extracurriculars, no drugs, no sex, no alcohol, like nothing. Um, I think really the main part of it was that I asked a lot of questions. Um, I felt very, I was very independent. My critical thinking skills started going and that kind of clashed against my being raised as a born-again christian as a evangelical christian um so that you know didn't really sit well it was basically just like Uh faith believe end of story period done and um you know i had a lot of questions mainly surrounding sex (laughs) i was like why can't i have sex (laughs) why do i have to wait why do i have to wait to get married Um, and you know, really the, the thread that was pulled for me on that one, as I was like trying to get to this answer, um, I was reading Genesis and, um, they were talking about Adam and Eve and then there were Cain and Abel and then there were more people. And I was (laughs) like, wait a minute, like, is there, is, is this incest? Isn't this a problem? And I went to my mom, I was like, Hey, um, isn't this like. Not okay. And she took out her Bible and she showed me her Bible. And there was a little footnote that said um, incest was okay back then because the gene pool was pure. And that was enough for me to be like, nope. <laughs> That's actually the exact opposite reason why it would be okay, right? <laughs> she and
1: I are both like, we went to high or for, to college for biology. That is, uh, f- first of all, who wrote it? i have
2: who wrote in the footnote i don't know King James did i don't know <laughs> that was the big that was the big unraveling for me
1: like you're you were born again Christian, and there were a few very, very evangelical people in, in our high school. I remember you being quiet like uh you know I, I do remember alopecia and um, I do remember you being an orcasist and stuff, but I remember you being very quiet, not outspoken, not evangelical. I, this is, I am shocked to hear that you were born again. I had no idea.
2: Oh, yeah. No, I was very shy. I definitely was quiet. So you remember me correctly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, you know, I turned out to be the shy stripper. So here, here I am. Well, a lot of performers
0: are very private in their, you know, in their off yeah. stage life. So
1: yeah. Like Freddie Mercury is like notoriously was very shy, very quiet, very like, I don't want to talk to anybody. I want like two people. And then on stage he was. Freddie
2: well, so here's my theory about that, because this is what I've experienced, um, is that the stage brings a level of safety to it. Where you can express who you are and live who you are. So, in the case of Freddie Mercury, yeah, he probably felt, oh, this is where I can be the most me that I can be and be validated and loved for it. But offstage, there wasn't room for that um, on a grand scale, you know? And I certainly have felt that in my life, in my, in my stage life versus personal life. Shilshi, your, your, your child is like that, I would say
0: by older kid is uh certainly a performer but there's a strict line between on stage and off stage they do not like they do not like that. just sing a song like nope i'm off you know i'm off the clock i don't perform for just anybody yeah.
2: yeah it's permission yeah absolutely absolutely um but yeah i mean i i found my way to the burlesque stage uh shortly after um shortly after graduating college in 2002 i ended up um you know yes i got my cap and gown in finance and then i exchanged it for a boa and gloves um (laughs) so i was like you know what i have this degree but i went back to dancing and i was teaching dance full time and um i ended up being a backup dancer for this band in champagne It was like glam rock, industrial, like guys in makeup and mohawks and all that. And then and then, you know, I was thrashing around in the back and the singer of that band was like, you know, I'm really interested in doing a burlesque show. Would you want to choreograph that? And I was like, sure. I like having (laughs) no idea what burlesque meant at all. I was just like, yes, you know um and so then i heard the music the classic burlesque music that you think of with the drums and the sax and all that and i was like oh my god this is what i've been doing in my bedroom this whole time <laughs> you're like i'm so good yes. at this <laughs> yeah yeah um the, the first time i i performed i was like oh my goodness this is it this is what i'm doing so my first strip tease was in 2003 and that came because the girl that I had actually choreographed for couldn't make the show. So I filled in for her, you know, I went on and she did not. <laughs> she could suck it. Where are you now? You know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That
0: <laughs> was your journey into burlesque and, and being a professional dancer. Is that what, is that what you're doing in Vegas now? Or are you running your own shop? Are you teaching lessons? Or what are you doing there right now?
2: Yeah, so Vegas was a decision to escape the pandemic. Um, so I was living, I moved from Chicago to LA about three years ago, th- three and a half at this point. Um, and LA was always a place that I wanted to be. I love being around the energy and like ambition and the amount of creativity that's there. Plus it's gorgeous. You know, I've I've put my time in with Chicago winter. I hate it. Um, and so it was just like amazing. Um, but the pandemic hit and being a performer and a producer, you know, my husband and I, who actually is that lead singer of the band, um, we actually <laughs> ended like from college, oh my you gosh. know, um, yeah. So we actually produce these shows together and we've, we've run this, um, production company for a long time. I've been doing burlesque for almost 20 years, which is bananas to me. When the pandemic hit, we lost everything, as a lot of people did. And so it was kind of like, okay, you know, where can we go where we can survive this? And luckily, our lease was ending. And um, they were actually raising our rent, which was crazy to me. Because LA is outrageously expensive and so he he floated this idea very precariously to me like gently what do you think about Vegas you know and I was like because I've always been like no I'm never living in Vegas I'm never I was gonna ask him like it seems (laughs) like it's come up before no I mean yeah but like I never wanted to like it was just like are you kidding me and I was just like yep Uh, yeah, that sounds good, you know. Um, So yes, we ended up moving out here last May and it was a really good, really good decision because we've saved a lot of money and we have a lot of space and we have our own pool, which is really great. Yeah, so we, you know, we, we pivoted to doing all virtual shows, Um, and we, you know, we pivoted quickly. It was like, we lost all of our jobs on the 14th. By the 19th, we had virtual shows out and running. Wow. Yeah. Like we boom, you know, we were, we were right there. So, you know, that was intense, but as as what I'm doing here right now, that's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) You're living your
0: best life.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm, I'm like looking to make another pivot, another transition and like getting back into quote unquote nor- normal, normalcy is, um, it's weird. It's very dissonant for me. It's, it's strange to like see people just behaving as if nothing happened. And it's just, it's, it's like very unsettling for me. There's a, there's a
1: huge element. Uh, like I have had this, it- a lot is um caution fatigue right where like i mean for you you lost you lost everything you had to move you had to pivot um you know we stayed in um she has you know an underlying condition she's immunocompromised we had to be so careful and you're looking around being like all these other assholes like i'm doing this for you and all these other assholes are doing nothing and you've had no change in your lives and we've had to flip
2: everything yeah a thousand percent. I was actually talking to my dad about this because nothing changed for him. Like nothing. Um, he's not getting vaccinated. He's not doing anything. Um, you know, and I, you know, we're at home. My husband is, is diabetic. His juvenile diabetes. Um, like definitely high risk, you know, and we sacrificed so much. We saw probably five people in 15 months. Um, And yeah, that was hard. But then my dad is out traveling everywhere, going out to restaurants, seeing friends, doing stuff, Mm -hmm. not wearing masks. I'm like, what is happening? (laughs) Like, it's not okay, right? Well, we went, uh, we drove
1: to Savannah and like me and Brian and Anushka, my daughter, and we drove to Savannah and then we came back up through Tennessee. And I was like, they live a different reality here. Yes. They're, They're in a parallel universe. Like, this is not the same reality, for sure, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. You had mentioned coming back to Chicago for a project.
2: Yeah. So I, I do produce still in Chicago. We're able to produce remotely. So there is a weekly show that we produce there. It opened back up again at the end of April um so that's helpful and then i you know i i popped in last month in june to perform for the first time since the shutdown so that was pretty epic um for me very emotional um but it was good you know the the stage is the stage means something different to me now than it used to and the 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 word that i keep coming back to In regards to performance is generosity and I think in the past my my place on the stage was a time for me to prove something to prove that I was talented enough to be there and that I am good and that you know I think I just I've had this insatiable need to really validate burlesque and and it's just been let down after let down um, because it's not its not really a validated art form. People talk about it as if it is an art form, and I believe it's an art form. Like, you know, all these women behind me, these are all burlesque legends um, that have danced in the past, and it's its hard. It's—it's it's, The economy of burlesque is hard because an, anybody can take their clothes off, right? So we were talking earlier about about Brandy on America's Got Talent and that was the whole thing is like well yeah anybody can take their clothes off. She
1: said that to you right?
2: Yeah I mean it is it is a very DIY thing it's something that we all do we all experience and so we don't understand the value or the skill behind it or the thoughts or the artistry behind it so you know. I was gonna say that's funny because yes it's
0: I mean not not hilariously funny but like ironically funny or like you know, kind of skeptically funny, which is like, it is true that anybody can take their clothes off. And in fact, most people do take their clothes off. The very young and the very old do not take their own clothes off. But anyone who has been in a relationship for any amount of time knows that there's a sexy way to take your your clothes off and there's a completely non-sexy way to take your clothes off. (laughs) So yes, you can take your clothes off but making it fun and funny and interesting and beautiful and engaging um, and um, enticing is a, it, that is the art form, not the taking off of clothes, right? I mean, I have seen my darling husband walk around with shorts and uh, like a socks ankle, like crew socks and flip-flops and I'm like not interested, right? Like. And I love him, but that is not sexy.
2: The socks and flip-flops really.
0: (laughs) And I'm going for a shower and I'm like, you know, like taking off my shirt and I have socks. One sock is on and my hair is like in a ponytail. Okay. That's not sexy either. There's a way to do it. And there's a way not to do it. Burlesque is about how, how do you do that from stage? Right. So I think it's so, uh, Dismissive and very small minded to say, well, anyone can take their clothes off. Well, yeah, but just because you take your clothes off doesn't make it burlesque. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, any, anyone could do a cartwheel, but not like the gymnastics that some of those people not are like on.
2: Simone Miles, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can play cello. I'm not
1: yo yo mom. Like, yeah, exactly. There's so many examples of that. Anyone can sing Brandy. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> maybe not how you think you say or whatever
2: you know so right so go go on yeah Yeah. no so for me you know it's it's about connection and and ownership of your own body and your own space and so that's the thing that makes burlesque special in my opinion is that for the most part i won't say this across the board but for the most part it is a really self um produced art um and there aren't a lot of those like you know singers have songwriters they have um you know stylists and and pr people and and all that but like burlesque is like from the ground up it's you're doing the costuming and the concept and the choreography and making all of these choices to make this act whatever it might be and well there's also a lot of there is
1: artistry for certain brian and i went years ago it was like our first new year's eve we were in seattle and we saw we went to a burlesque show for like um at midnight like it was the the show at the nice next, yeah for new year's eve and it was so stunning it was so beautiful yes it was like they didn't have all their clothes on all the time but at the same time i was shocked not by the artistry but the fucking athleticism That, you know, She and I, in one of the episodes uh, that just aired, we talked about, like, ballet dancers and just how much control they have to have over, like, every fiber of their body. When there are two burlesque dancers, like, twisting around on a pole together, they not only have to have athleticism over themselves and control, but they have to trust that the other person has complete athleticism and control over that self. Otherwise, they're falling over. Everyone's falling over. So like, it's almost like this self-produced art and sport all at the same time.
2: Yeah. I mean, it can be, you know, it it depends how athletic you want to be. One of my most favorite things to do is to stand on stage and just stare at people. That's my, like, I freaking love that. Um, and I find the challenge of of being still very appealing because to engage an audience and to have that kind of power and control by just being present and being grounded and like connecting, um, it, that that gets me off. That excites me, you know, like, yeah, I high kick and split, but I really love when I just stand there and it's funny because i'm getting this reputation now like people coming to me who who say oh you know i want to come to your class because i just really love how you do nothing <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like well no no it's not really nothing like it's really this practiced moment of power and presence and active stillness is what i call it and um it's a vulnerable thing it's a vulnerable thing to have people look at you and to not only allow it but to invite it on your terms to direct to direct their eye and to give them permission Mm. and so there is that whole talk of object objectification or subject right and so people will ask me you know are you okay with being an object and it's like well you know it's not really up to me um who considers me an object and who doesn't my intention is to be a subject and to have a conversation, um, but if you want to only view me as an object, that option is there. We can't control how other people view us, mm-hmm. um, whether w- whether you're on stage or whether you're just walking down the street. I think we've all experienced that. Like it doesn't matter, um, but what does matter is your intention.
0: Hey, I'm not just sitting here doing nothing. And secondly, I can only be objectified without my own consent. And I am consenting to stand here and consenting to have people, you know, I'm inviting their gaze. And so if someone's going to dismiss my humanity, I can't control that. But I am an active participant in this exchange. So it's not, oh, you're an object, right? This is, this is it's under my control as well. I could walk off the stage and it would be over. And, w- and what a great way to sort of turn the tables on being objectified to be like, well, no, you can only be objectified if you don't consent to the activity. Um, So that's that's really, it, that's such a great perspective. I think for all of us on so many different levels, right? I think whether it's at work or whether it's in our personal lives or- Or
1: walking down the street and getting catcalled. Like it's, to your point, like all of us have- have gone through that and most women
0: most women most women or female presenting people
2: yes yeah but i will say that you know a lot of men in the profession like the chippendales kind of guys whoa if you want to talk about objectification go to one of those shows because it's off the charts because women lose their goddamn minds because they're like, I finally get to behave like a man. I finally get to release all this, this like tension and treat you like an object. And it's like, but but that, I mean, that's the difference is like men don't really experience a, that uh, like objectification on a daily basis like we mm-hmm. do, you know, and we experience it virtually you know digitally getting dick pics which i just got one the other day and i was Uh, like who is still doing this like what do we all know that this is over and should have never been a thing like why is this still happening you know and what is the desired reaction when you send a dick pic is it like my husband
0: says that worked for one guy one time that's it some guy got what he wanted one guy one time and then it's like every guy's like well i'll try it maybe it'll work
2: yeah, I guess it just takes one time. You never know. Like, I don't know about you, but like, I need to get to know the thing around the dick. Like, I can't just be like, oh, strange dick, I'm in. You know, like, I gotta know about you. Yeah. <laughs>
1: right. Female
2: anatomy, it can be very
1: sensual. It can be very sexy, even by itself. Like, look at all of Georgia Keith, right? It's like very right. beautiful. No one's out yeah. there like drawing dick pics or painting dicks and selling out a museum gallery of them. I mean,
2: there probably there probably are some artists doing that. (laughs) Let's not give anyone any ideas. Yeah.
0: Most women or female presenting people need more context than just a picture of your genitalia. Even if it's like, can I buy you a drink? Like there has to be some interaction, right? Um it's just it's a different MO.
2: I, you know, I need to care. I need to care about the dick, you know. <laughs> I really do. I just can't get in get into it, get onto it, whatever. Right. Um but um being on married the- that
0: would that would kind of really get in the way of the marriage piece too. Just be like, yeah. Oh yeah, that's good, I'll take this one.
1: All right. <laughs> even if there's like an uh, open or poly situation, which we're actually talking to a couple poly amorous people, like even in that, I don't think it's like, oh, I saw this dick. I'm gonna just jump on it. Yeah. I'll come back to my wife later. It's not like that.
2: No, no, no. That's all. So that's
0: that's one piece of your work that you have been a burlesque dancer. You have choreographed these dances. um, That's really been your passion for a long time. But there's another piece of your work, you're a sexuality educator and can you talk about that and how you got into that work as well
2: well it, it started because i was teaching burlesque um so i've been teaching burlesque as long as i've been doing burlesque and for me it was really important to in order to have an audience i felt i needed to educate an audience because again like we were talking earlier it's a very misunderstood art form you know and i wanted to to bring the artistry to people and make them appreciate like look you know you can you can take your bra off this way you can take your Mm. gloves off this way and like there's musicality and costuming and all this stuff with it but what i found in that is that women were experiencing this level of confidence and empowerment and that was super exciting for me and That's like a huge passion for me is, is bringing beauty to women and showing them that they're beautiful no matter what. And I can sit here and say this and someone will look at me and be like, yeah, but you're this. And they think these things about me. And it's like, yeah, well, I'm not that. Like we all have we all have these trials and these challenges and things that we have to overcome and things that are going on with our bodies. Like, i just like to say that I've been spending this entire time fixing my hair because I'm like staring at you.
1: And I was like, oh my <laughs> God, I look like so frumpy. And I'm like, been like trying to make my hair look pretty because I'm like, you are just like so stunning right now. So I, oh. I'm definitely, I'm zoned in on what you're saying right now. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, but that's, I mean, that's part of it is that we, we start comparing ourselves and, you know, we, that's like the great lie that we, that we have is that we think if, if this person has that, then we can't have that, that, that we believe in this idea of scarcity and we believe it with everything. We believe it with power. We believe it with um, money. We believe it with beauty. Absolutely. And that's where, the jealousy comes in and where things just aren't productive right and Mm -hmm. we start especially now you know scrolling through instagram all the time and looking at all these perfect people and suddenly you're left feeling really depressed and empty and numb and you don't know why because really everything's fine in your life like things are good or you know maybe they're not but you know let's say they are but suddenly you're not feeling good because you're you're consuming all these images, right? And, and making up stories behind what these images represent. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want women to feel othered anymore. You know, I, I think that our power is so spectacular and so brilliant that I want to nurture that. I want to share my story. I want to tell you, look, I was a famous burlesque dancer who had alopecia who overcame that who hid it I hid my alopecia and I actually came out about it um, three years ago and I made a video and took my wig off so my hair is like a little mohawk right now um, but you know shaving it shaving it was an act of ownership because I didn't want to hide anymore and once I shaved, my hair, my, my hairdresser said to me, now you will become who you are. And I was just like, yes, yes. Because now I'm not afraid. And now I can be, you know, how I was talking earlier about that dissonance between being on stage and being off stage and not, and feeling shy and nervous that went away because I wasn't scared anymore. I wasn't, hiding anymore off stage and I was able to interact with people on a completely different level because I was showing up for my own life.
1: More raw, vulnerable, present, open.
2: And so, you know, the the things that I was talking about earlier, what makes something beautiful, what makes something sexy, what I've landed on is truth. That beauty is truth. Whatever your truth is, if you fully embody that whatever that is you have no choice but to be beautiful and to ab- emit this light and brilliance because when you're in your truth you it's attractive it's attractive to others When you know it right like you experience that and people that you're talking to in this podcast i'm sure you You can feel that, right? And when you finally decide to own that and own who you are and your past, I mean that's a different level of confidence right there.
1: Yeah. I'm like (laughs) neither like the part that you said about owning your past, I think is a
2: piece
1: of the, the the truth piece that is truly kind of that last hurdle, right? Is that even, you know, we're, we have talked about, um, like, transgender people or, you know, Shayla she's non-binary um, child. And we talked to a transgender teen and then her dad. And her dad was like, I think that as we get, you know, there's the whole idea of a dead name and not talking about, not showing pictures, not having, you know, like, any of those memories of when they weren't living their truth. And he said, I truly think that Violet will at one point be okay with that because that's part of the journey. And I think that that fits exactly what you're saying is it's not just accepting your truth of who you are now, but where you came from.
2: Yeah. And that's truly the, the hardest part of it all because we can look at our past whether we were living our truth or not we we've made mistakes right we've said things we've done things um i'm sure a lot of us during this past year and a half have looked back and and had this coming to jesus moment for lack of a better word right um that oh no like i was misinformed and i these opinions weren't correct and maybe i need to have more compassion for others, but ultimately I need to have more compassion for myself and giving yourself that grace um, so that you can grow, right? Like we give grace to people. We give grace to other people so easily, right? Uh We we give them room, we give them space, but we don't offer that to ourselves. And how healing would that be if we were able to give that to ourselves and I'm speaking from experience you know I I would look back at photos of myself and cringe whether I had hair or not because I would look back at photos from the past and think ooh like yeah I know I look glamorous here but I I know what I'm feeling in this moment I know that I'm struggling and I'm hurting and I'm in pain and that's all I can see in this photo and so being able to look back at those photos and give myself some compassion and some grace uh, has been very, very healing. Yeah, I think
0: that, like just like Kosha said, I completely agree that the idea of, like you can't live your truth unless you are whole and being whole means that you have to embrace and accept who you used to be or what your life used to be like. And, you know, the parts of you that you don't really love, you know, I just, that made me think about just you saying, you know, I looked at these pictures and all I can see is this, you know, there, I've got pictures the first year from when my, you know, my first kid was born and all I see is someone with postpartum, like severe postpartum depression. And and I can't see the joy in those pictures Mm -hmm. or I couldn't until recently, until I, you know, could forgive myself for not being healthy at that time. But it's not, you know, that, what could one do in that moment? Yeah. If you're sick, you're sick, whatever that, you know, if you're have a mental health issue or a physical health issue or, or emotional challenges or whatever your life, financial challenges, right. that's what it is. And that's, you know, you just. Like, but you cannot be whole until you like, oh, and that's what was happening then. And it wasn't great, but it's okay. Like, I, I think the other thing is like you don't have to love all of it. Oh, my God, everything was awesome. No, no, don't lie to yourself that way either.
1: Or saying that it wasn't a big, a big deal. It was a big deal.
0: It, it's okay to acknowledge that things were hard and that you struggled. Maybe you weren't happy. Maybe it wasn't easy. But all of that is part of you your story and who you are yeah yeah
2: but i would say that you could also love that as well because the love that we have for ourselves i mean we are the longest relationship that we will have like we are with ourselves the entire time constantly yeah (laughs) so so what would that look like if we had this unconditional unconditional love for ourselves where we could we could still love ourselves in the face of, um, sickness or, um, acting out or making mistakes or, you know, whatever the case may be. Right. Um, that's the, the, the thing of it all is that it's a process, it's a journey, right? And I know a journey is like such an eye rolling inducing word, um, but it is right. But we don't live in a. a world where the journey makes any sense it's all about now it's all about immediacy it's all about like cure me now right like here's this pill you'll be fine like don't it has nothing to do with uh you know other factors of your life you know that we're not not very holistic we're very compartmentalized Mm -hmm. and that is really uh, messy in your brain um especially as women because it's like you know, where is your sexuality good? Like, what, where, where, are you familiar with Audrey Lorde mm-hmm. by any chance? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, you know, she's talking about our erotic that is relegated to the bedroom. That, but even there, our erotic in the bedroom can still be performed instead of participatory, right? So our pleasure can be performed. Oh, for sure, uh-huh. yeah.
1: And women have been, are very well versed in this right
2: yeah so and because we're we constantly want to make other people feel better um and i was just reading this article today before before uh before this interview and i had to shut my computer i was so angry because this woman was talking about um how to have feminine energy and to attract a a mate and and men don't want you to be too aggressive and you have to pull back for men in 2021 like you were just it's like a recent article yes recent article and she is teaching classes and i'm like oh my god no 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 we are not he apologizing for the space we take up. No, it's not happening, right? Um, one of the classes I teach is called Pussy Confidence, which I might change the name of it because I can't really advertise on social media. But the the point of it is, is, is rooting your confidence in something bigger than you. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a pussy to be confident. It means that we're rooting in something that is connected to this divine feminine energy that we've been neglecting and ignoring for so long. Because in order for us to move through this world, this patriarchal world, um, we have to shut that down and we have to nurture our masculine energy and we're very good at that you know we're very good at we're being the strong woman right it's like what the hell does strong woman even mean because to me it's a redundant phase though like it's it's all women are strong period end of story done whether they believe it or not and so my job what my mission is to show them like yes you do possess this like you do possess this power you do possess this divinity. And um, I've broken down pussy to mean present, unapologetic, speaking love, speaking desire, and saying yes to life. So that's what pussy means to me. That's
0: awesome. I love that.
2: I did not know that. Well, and I think it sounds like it's like the opposite.
1: You know, you hear about like big dick energy now, like who's giving off like BDE, big dick energy. And we're saying the same thing about like big dick energy. It's just, this is like the feminine side of it. And, you know, in, you know, we talked about religion a little bit in Hinduism, which Shailish and I both grew up in a Hindu household. I am now an atheist, but um, a lot of the philosophical things like I've pulled forward. And one of them that like the Western world just doesn't have, and India is not very good at this either, but in the scriptures you have a male and female their count their cohorts their counterparts one doesn't you know like function without the other it sounds like your pussy confidence is really about is really about honing that counterpart to big dick energy
2: yeah I mean and and speaking of you know your culture um you know yoni worship was big like it was the ritual of it um And we've just, we've gotten away from that. And it's not so much that, you know, it's that I want people to connect to the goddess and what the idea of a goddess is, because it's in all of us. It's there. You already have it. In case you didn't know you have it (laughs) um and so it's it's nurturing that energy and on the actual physicality of it all um i have a podcast called look down there which is all about getting vulva owners to look at themselves and remove the shame from owning a vulva because we all know there's so much shame involved in that and Doing what I've done for so long, being a professional naked person, um, you wouldn't think that I would have insecurities surrounding my vulva, but I absolutely did. I mean, my tagline is the most naked woman. However, I knew exactly how to pose so that you didn't see my other lips. You know, I was like, oh no, it's too much. It's too much, right? How many times have we been told it's too much? But I, w- I, I was like, oh no, you know, I, I don't look like the porn that I've seen or the, or the people in, in Playboy. Like I don't look like that. And so I've always carried this shame and this burden around it until finally I was like, nope, not anymore. We're done, We're done with that. Do you think that was that connected when you shave your head? If you watch some of these
1: makeover shows and stuff, you have people with like, I have really long hair, but if people long hair who refuse to cut it, and it's their security blanket, because once it's cut, once it's gone, then you have no choice but to kind of show yourself. Was that
2: connected to when you kind of let go of the wigs and Shaved your head? Um, kind of. It was a it was a slow burn, um, which sounds bad in this context, but it was really when I got censored. Um, I mean, I have been banned on YouTube, and I've experienced lots of censorship on Instagram, shadow banning, being disabled. What's shadow banning? Shadow banned. Oh, that's really fun. Is when you when you actually have an account, but no one can find you. Um, oh, I see. Yeah. That. So you're in the shadows, essentially. Okay. Oof.
0: You're not being overtly blocked, but you're being covertly blocked.
2: Totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it happens to a lot of women, a lot of bipoc women, of course, um, you know, anybody who doesn't fit the molds, right? Um, so I was just really angry one day, and I thought, well, you know, fuck the man, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to just have this big gallery show. It's just my pussy on the wall. Just huge. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. And then after my anger subsided, I was like, oh yeah, that's a really good idea. (laughs) So so, um, my husband and I started this project where he would take photos of me like very intimately like black and white like very romantic beautiful photos and like in doing that project I was like okay like I feel better with this and like why why aren't we looking at ourselves and this is such a source of power and creation and pleasure and we're so disconnected from it and you know it would be like never seeing your big toe except your big toe can't orgasm well maybe you can maybe you can have a toe orgasm who knows i haven't, um, I haven't checked we haven't yeah. talked
0: to anyone that has done that but that doesn't mean it's not out there that's one of the letters
2: <laughs> so. like
1: lgbtqa it's like way down in the, <laughs> in yeah. the letters
2: <laughs> yeah
1: well, it's interesting, Michelle, because I, I took, I took boudoir pictures when Brian turned 40. So I was 30 now. So it's been two years. And the whole thing was like to give him, you know, the album, like when, um, on his birthday, but a hundred percent, and I kind of had a feeling about this when I was going into it. And then like this minute I walked into the studio, I was like, this is for me. Like he might get the pictures, but the entire process, including the pictures it was for me. Yeah. Cause I've been, you know, I'm so much insecurity about my weight and, you know, body dysmorphia and I have eating disorders. And I'm like, this is for me being like, I'm not the skinniest I've been I'm probably like lumpier and bumpier than I've been. I'm not perfect, but like a hundred
2: percent of that process was for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that turned it like really, made this important to me is um i found something on my labia and i was like oh this doesn't look right you know and i had to go have it biopsied and do all the thing and i had a really terrible experience with the doctor um like at a cancer center and she she kept calling it my bottom i was like my bottom like come on now you know like this is a problem if we're bringing this kind of shame into the medical field and then i started thinking about how many people could maybe have prevented something if they were just look at themselves you know if Mm -hmm. like how, how much does shame really hurting us in the end and um you know i don't know if you're picking up on a the theme here but anger is very important to me <laughs> yeah it's a it's the i spent a long time trying to get rid of anger um but no it like anger is the source of my creation wait
1: does that not work does getting rid of your anger not work?
2: no
0: it doesn't work
2: <laughs> no <laughs> anger is a fuel Oh yeah. It's my fuel. It's my fuel. So, you know, I was fueled up about this, especially when I asked my doctor, Hey, is there anything I can do to help prevent this? Or, you know, so it doesn't happen again. And she's like, stop looking at your bottom so much. No, 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 no. So I went home and I created Look Down There and I have 20 episodes out and it's been awesome. (laughs) Yeah. You still do it? Yeah. So I just finished, um, season one at the end of June and then I am taking the summer off and I'll be back in September, but. Very
0: cool. Yeah.
1: But the the one thing that I do is like, I work in the medical field, and I work in like mental health. And I just know that the whole idea of like ignoring something, you have to call things by their name that we talk about. Like, no, that's bipolar. You're not just like when you have diabetes, you're not, you, you, your sugars aren't off. You have diabetes. Like we have to right. talk about this. Um, and the one thing I remember that you said, you know, that something about her bottom, this one person that I worked with long, long time. I don't even remember her name, but she had two boys. They called the penises their tails. And one of the boys, they were like nine and seven. I think then seven year one of them Walked in on when she was peeing, and she was sitting down, and she and he goes, "Oh my god, mom, do you pee out of your butt?" And she said,
0: "Yes." No, oh no. See, this is how if you and I know it's supposed to be funny, but places like BuzzFeed or whatever will do these like, "What are the most ridiculous things that men believe about women?" Yes, and that this is that contributes to it that. Someone's mom, when they were a child told them, yes, women pee out of their butts. And so men don't understand that there's a urethra and a vagina and an anus and they're three separate things, right? Like if you, if adults don't educate their children with the proper words and, you know, accurate anatomy lessons, you know, there's two issues with it, which I, Michelle, I'm sure you're familiar with. One is that children just don't learn proper things and they grow up believing weirdness.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But the second thing is, you know, and Kosh and I have talked about this a lot, which is it's so critical to teach young children the accurate words of their anatomy because heaven forbid a child ever be sexually abused. They should be able to say exactly what and where happened to them.
1: There, yeah. Well, there's a story of like a six-year-old who kept saying her tummy hurt. My tummy hurts so bad. My tummy hurt so bad. And then finally they took her to the doctor. They did a vaginal exam and saw that she had been being abused. Oh, horrible. Imagine she had been saying her tummy hurts for months and, or weeks or whatever. Like imagine if, if she was able to say like my vagina hurt first time. Or someone put something
0: in my vagina. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Right. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Right. Like. But that's a you know an example of how shame keeps us quiet, right? And and has that control. It's not just hurting our mental, our
1: mental health, which is big a big enough thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, but also you know knowing your anatomy is a great roadmap to pleasure, knowing yeah. what like what makes you feel good and you know, honestly, the clitoris, right? There's so much more to it than we've been told. And what's crazy about that is that we knew that Mm -hmm. like, like year, I don't know how long ago, like I was just reading about it. Um, it's a book called Raising the Skirt and the author was on my show, but that that was discovered that the clitoris has the legs and the bulbs and the shaft and all that. And then that was just buried for a very long time. And then, you know, now it's just coming out. And it's like having that knowledge really opens up your whole pleasure vocabulary and you know, what what you can explore and what a partner can explore. Um, But that's, that's a good example of, of just basic anatomy, right, that can can really lead to great experiences.
0: (laughs) I have a question that's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit off this path, but it's related. And that, um, unlike men, women experience a pretty significant shift in hormones in their mid forties, early fifties. Right. Um, and for some of us, uh, it happens for medical reasons and, your whole experience of your sexuality shifts. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was wondering if you've had any older women in your burlesque classes and in your sexuality education workshops and sort of like, what's the difference between talking to younger women who are sort of at the prime and peak of of their sexual drive? Let's say they're feeling comfortable, they feel good about their bodies and then they hit a, point where it just goes you know kind of falls off a cliff yeah there was a point where i really started to struggle with my identity around being a sexual person after met after being put into medical menopause i was like i i don't have that it doesn't come from inside me anymore the drive is not internal um yeah. and so what does this mean for me and it was such a major and quick shift but it happens to every woman who lives long enough basically
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So a few things on that. Uh, I'll give you two book recommendations, which you may have read already. Have you read Come As You Are? Yes. Emily Nagoski. Dr. Emily Nagoski is amazing, amazing. And then the other one is Love Sex Again by Dr. Laura Stryker, who is based in Chicago and maybe would be good for your show. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, she's great. um, But she talks a lot about um, that and how to, you know, rev those engines again if, right. if you wanted. Mm-hmm. But um, going back to people in class, um, the thing that I've learned is that I can't generalize. Ah. I know it's so hard because yeah. judging, I, like we all judge quickly, you know. Um, but the thing is, is about you talk about the younger people who are like yeah 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 ready to go they are still very insecure and Mm. very i don't even know if it's getting it's it's like in one ways in one way we have all this access to knowledge and acceptance you know these kids who are coming out as um Mm non-binary or trans or gay and they're young they're like seven ten you know that's amazing and they're they're growing up in this world where these conversations are being had and the acceptance is there where you know we didn't have that when we were growing up but we're still subject to comparison mm-hmm. and judgment so one of the things i notice with maybe an older woman is that they've been able to process a lot of the, the hurt so that they're kind of in a different, in a different place in their life where it's not that they don't give a fuck, but it's like, they've, they've processed a lot of that stuff already. And so they're just in a different place. Right. So it's not sure. like one's better than the other, it's right. just different. I can just imagine like
0: for I can talk for myself, right. It's not that all of those insecurities go away when you hit a certain age or you, oh, I'm menopause and none of that matters anymore. They're still there. And like you said, Michelle, there may be more of like an acceptance or like, I just remember thinking, just thinking of my own life. When I was 25, the idea of being naked in the dressing room with other women was like mortifying. Mm -hmm. Oh, people are gonna be looking at me. Then by the time I'd had two kids, I was like, I don't care. Right. Right. Like you just go like, (laughs) There's a practicality about getting dressed at the gym after you've worked out that you're like, whatever. If people look at me, good for them. Well, now
1: you understand why why you have those like old men walking around the locker room yeah. in their side. So- they, right.
0: they don't give a shit. Right. The insecurities don't always go away. And you also get this like, and you cannot rely on your own internal drive to get you to a place of being aroused. So then mm. it's, I think the challenge there is how do we as educators, as podcasters, as people who are spreading the word, help women find the resources to create the space for themselves to invest in that, right? It's not just, I don't give a fuck. It's that I can't rely on the things I used to rely on. And I still have some insecurity and maybe some new insecurity because I can't rely on the things I used to rely on.
2: Right. And that's why We can't rely on the external for our confidence. We can't rely on how our body looks or feels for our confidence. Like our confidence has to come from a very deep, ancient place um if we are solely relying on how our body looks it's it's not going to work out for us right so our relationship with our body is is important because it changes constantly day to day it changes right decade to decade and you know what you're experiencing now this is a time for you to have a time of rediscovery right and get back into your body. So I, I was reading this book that our relationship with our body is is more of like a master servant kind of thing. Like we tell our body what to do and it's like, we all know that doesn't work out, right? <laughs> we're all aware like our bodies tell us what's going on, but the thing is, is that we're not listening and we're we're setting up all these roadblocks to that communication. And so what would that feel like if we were able to remove some of these roadblocks and really tune into what it is that our body wants. And I I call that listening to the yes. And it, it doesn't have to happen purely sexually. That's like, you know, standing or sitting and listening to your body and saying, oh, um you know, my right shoulder really wants to do this, or my hand really wants to touch my other arm or whatever. So just tuning into the sensuality of it all and, and that presence again, like it all comes, comes back to presence. What a
0: great takeaway because that, you know, tuning into yes, like listening for the yes, that's so important for so many aspects of a person's life
2: yeah not just
0: women men too right and not just about sensuality or sexuality about getting enough sleep drinking Mm -hmm. enough water what should you be eating setting
1: boundaries like
2: yeah because how many how many times does our body say no, or we like physically feel a no, but then our mouth says yes, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. And then you walk away, and you're like, "What just happened?" Yeah. You know? And then you're experiencing pain. Maybe you're experiencing pain. Maybe you're experiencing anxiety, tension, Fatigue. tightness. Maybe you can't sleep. Right? Yeah. I mean, so that's our body being like, "Hey, psst. <laughs> I'm over here." Right? You actually don't want to do this thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> And I think it's so interesting how we over societally have been continuously trained not to listen to our gut, our bodies, mm. right? Like we're all like, you can listen to your heart sometimes in relationship matters only. You can listen to your head most of the other time. That's your head knows what's going on. Mm. Uh, you can think your way out of most problems. And if you have to have feelings, you can have feelings separately.
2: But but preferably don't. Yeah, preferably don't do tell happy. me about them. Yeah. <laughs> Only happy feelings.
0: Right, right, right. But the intuition, our body knowledge is like, oh, that's not a thing, right? It's like,
2: mm-hmm. yeah, our our body overall, our body intelligence is lacking. Overall. and we talk
1: about like IQ, and then this whole idea of emotional intelligence and EQ has come up, but there should be like a BQ. Your your gut has known you your whole life. So there is something
2: to listening to, I'm going to start saying that, body intelligence. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's about, you know, um, body awareness um, and engagement. So there's the three levels of the body intelligence would be um, body awareness, knowledge, just straight up knowledge, and then engagement. Like, how do you engage with your body? Like, how do you say, like, tuning in and saying, oh, I have a pain here having the knowledge to fix it or to seek treatment like that, that's your engagement, right? So, I mean, that's a simple example, but, um, I don't know if you're familiar with somatics at all or have studied it at all, but I mean, that's all about where the emotion lies in your body and a lot of it can't be explained or, or needs more exploration and research. Because feelings are messy, pain is messy, discomfort is messy. We don't want to live in discomfort. A lot of the healing has to happen in that yucky place. That's the truth of the matter is that we have to be willing to sit in that discomfort, whether whatever that means, if that's in meditation or therapy or whatever that is for you. What I used to do is teach from a place of gaze where um, I would be like, this is how you make the body line and this is what they like. And this is what, you know, it was always about this imaginary audience. And when I lost my hair and I shaved it off and I had this new frame of mind, this new body, this new shape, um, I had to go back into the studio alone and I had to rediscover my body and rediscover what it is that I liked so just like I used to do back in high school when I would try to discover what was sexy what was beautiful I had to do this again for myself and take the audience out of it and I will tell you that exercise was very difficult I going into the studio every week and just being with myself and moving for the sake of moving and exploring my pleasure in movement and it's making me uncomfortable just it's giving me anxiety just
1: thinking about it right now
2: yeah i mean it is like you know meeting yourself in the mirror and and you can't lie to yourself that's the thing that's the thing of it all right right Right. but it's it's important work and i i like to think of it as research and i like the word research because Research doesn't have judgment in it inherently, right?
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: If we were like, uh, you know, body scientists and we were just exploring and researching and being and observing without judgment, I think we could really get a lot done. That judgment, it really bogs you down. And um, I will tell you that no one is immune to it. No one. I had this experience once when I was teaching um, i had to it it was for a tv show and i had to teach a a girl or a a woman how to do a striptease for her husband because they were having like marital problems and so the doctor was like oh why don't you you do this and you do that and whatever so my job was to teach this woman this is people you will see walking down the street and think all the judgy thoughts blonde Tiny, skinny, tan, blue, like all the checkpoints of like what we as a culture deem beautiful, right? This poor woman could not look in the mirror. She was so horrified by her own image. I had to teach her facing a brick wall. I was in my studio, full of mirrors. I had to teach her facing the wall. It took me almost an hour to get her to turn around to look in the mirror, and that taught me a huge lesson. It's like no one has it all, no matter what they're saying on social media. No one is like not battling demons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all at a different. We're all at a different point like of discovery with ourselves and healing with ourselves and it's it's so easy to just cast that judgment because you're having a bad day right or because that dress doesn't zip up you know but Kosha, were you going to ask me is there a lot of judgment in burlesque no well actually i would like you to answer that but
1: i was just going <laughs> to say um that she i come from a culture and i think a lot of cultures are like this but come from a culture that is very judgy on how you look and I you know we've told this story before but she, she was an outdoor kid scraped up her knees and was told by our mom that she would never find a man to marry her because she had ugly knees I was we were always too big we were always you know like but I was very fair I look like my mom I'm very fair skinned. so that's beautiful what I'm imagining and this I apologize if it's stereotypical but a lot of those like evangelical Western religions are very like, cover yourself up, like you're not supposed to be a sexual person. You're not. So is there still judgment behind the scenes when it comes to your body image or body or fat shaming or anything like that? For me personally? For you and then beyond, however you'd like to. (sighs)
2: Yeah, no, not for me personally, Um, like in, in this current state of being that I am right now. Um, yes, there was for me back then. I mean, it was definitely the abstinence, our sex ed with them was, uh, abstinence, you know, like it was all like, wait till marriage. But I also come from a family that didn't get along. We all fought, everyone fought. My parents should have never been together. I, um, it, I learned very quickly, um, the, the facade, right? I learned who my parents were at church and with friends and what happened when we were at home. I mean, we could be having like all out bloodbath screaming matches at home and then we'd all get in the car to go to church, you know? And I was just like, no, 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 this is not right. This is not right. This is hypocritical. This is, this is awful. Um, and I would see the judgment. Um, so no, you know, I think the only thing physically for my family was like, take care of yourself, you know, I find that interesting because in my mind they're not living for now. Like they're not living for this like moment that we have. Like a lot of us live in fear. Right. And, and my, all the women in my family really embody like fear and resentment um, and martyrdom, you know, they're like poster children for this. I, what I had to discover, you know, cause I was disowned twice. Um, the second time was for five years because of burlesque, because I did burlesque. So, you know, that was really hard to make sense of. Um, but the thing that I had to realize is like, oh, my mom is, is filtering what her mom said, and my grandma is filtering what my great-grandma said, and this just goes down and down and down, and whatever progress gets made from generation to generation still going to be tainted with that, the stuff that came before it, and so that's when I finally was like, oh, I could let that, I can let that go. Like, yes, it's annoying, and it doesn't have to be this way, but I also don't have to take it personally. And what's funny is that once I came to that conclusion, once I was able to see things from her perspective and kind of piece together, you know, what I think happened to her in her childhood, I was able to like not be angry about being disowned. And shortly after my own kind of release on that, she reached out to me, my mom reached out to me to apologize to me. And that was uh, shocking. So we we do have a relationship now. We don't talk about these things, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I think she's proud of me from a business standpoint, but would probably prefer I didn't do such sexually explicit things. <laughs> it what's coming out in
1: this like sexuality and and gender spectra season, and even last season is the facade, like how much we talk about, you know, having to be the model minority, for example, having to be the perfect Indian, because now it represents, if I do something, I'm not just representing me, but my entire family and my entire village and my entire culture. And now 1.3 billion Indians are relying on me to be the perfect Indian person. Yeah. It's too much, too much
2: pressure.
0: We talked a lot about your work with women, um, which I'm assuming you mean Largely cisgendered and largely heterosexual. Have you done work with people who are transgender, um, transgender women
2: or non-binary or non-gender conforming? Yes, I have worked with uh, transgender women. And um, no, I don't teach anything different. Um, I I believe that feminine energy is with all of us, within all Mm -hmm. of us. Um, And if that's something that you want to explore, uh, I am here for it.
0: Awesome. Harkening back to Hinduism. One of my favorite depictions of Shiva and Parvati or Shiva, you know, Shakti is it's a basically 50 50 depiction Um, Mm -hmm. and was actually quite moving for my non binary child when I showed them, look, you know, Western culture, it's like, God is a man. It's all male energy, right? But in Hinduism, not only, as Kosha said, is there a correlated feminine energy for every masculine energy. So yes, Vishnu is the sustainer, but his consort is, you know, the goddess of prosperity, i.e. you cannot live a long life unless you have the resources that you need. That's what you need to sustain yourself. Yes. Yeah. Right. And that, the univ- every part of the universe is composed of both masculine and feminine, in quotes, energies.
2: But the energy isn't gendered, right? The energy is not gendered. And so that's what I think is important to note is that I'll possess this this energy.
0: And that's why I put it in quotes, quote yeah. masculine or quote feminine. But there's a push and a pull energy or a light and a dark or an explode or a contract. Like there's yeah. always the balance. Yeah. of things that move out and things that move in whatever yeah. that is right i think maybe
1: you and shayla she were meant to be i mean i we were meant to be friends you and i but you and shayla Shailushi, shayla's name in sanskrit means goddess it does oh, it. <laughs> and and my name is treasure which it's not as
2: awesome but kosha listen to yourself listen to yourself i said it's not as Thank awesome you. yeah Listen, what you were telling me all these different examples of how you were bringing up other women, your sister included. You are a treasure, my dear. See, now it's giving me anxiety. No, don't, don't you dare cut this out, by I, the
1: way. I, uh, <laughs> I'm the editor of this. No, yeah. but I, yeah, I mean, it just, it goes to show how easily we do that.
2: Well, the one of the hardest things is to receive pleasure and receive joy one of the things that I teach in my class is when someone gives you a compliment say thank you end of story I had lunch with uh
1: my nibbling She'll, she's oldest today and I said that to them was I was telling them how you know like amazingly artistic and creative they are and I was like I was like I'm gonna give you a compliment and I know you're bad at it but just sit there and listen to it and then say thank you after like you don't have to argue against every compliment and then I do it myself right so yeah yeah
2: but I mean that's how it goes right so so let's uh let's yeah that's your homework um let's internalize that I'm giving you homework I can do that um but I you know I in reference to energy it's like I, I want to redefine what the idea of feminine energy is, because it's not a passive receptive energy. Like it's an energy contains multitudes, right? So we're the Eve and the Lilith, we're the Madonna and the whore, right? Like we're, we're wild, we're erotic, we're creative, we're passionate, nurturing, loving, generous, sensual. Vengeful, destructive right? I think that's a lot of the
0: stuff that gets left off.
2: Yeah. It's all there. Yeah. We're, we're lovers and fighters, right? We're warriors.
0: So what's next for you?
2: What is next? Yeah. So right now I am working on an on-demand online platform, um, putting together a class series and membership programs and it's all about this redefining the feminine through movement yeah and I'm super pumped about it so I've been working on that for a few months getting that ready to go and I'm also working on my confidence classes as well so I might perform here and there I'll be back in Chicago um, in August and probably October for Halloween. Um, so I'll still, I'll, I'll still dip my toe back on the stage here and there, but, and I am also working on getting my certification on being an intimacy coordinator for TV and film. Oh, I just want to
0: really be clear that I understand what that is, because that's, uh, is that what it sounds like?
2: Uh, well, I don't know. Um, an intimacy coordinator is someone who is on set for TV and film, who coordinates intimate scenes and is an advocate and a liaison for the actors um, and the directors and making sure that the vision is fulfilled while everyone's being comfortable and working with boundaries and consent. And Right.
0: So you're the person that's like, oh, there's a super hot, steamy scene. And how do we choreograph this and block it? And make sure everyone's on board and that we're like hearing everyone's concerns, but yet we're also getting the right lighting and the right camera angles and all that stuff so that everyone gets what they need and the place, the experience is safe for everybody.
2: Yep. What a cool job. That's really cool. It's really blowing up. It's, it's really gaining a lot of popularity. Um, any show that you watch now on HBO has an intimacy coordinator. And it should be. It, it has to be choreographed because that's the line between the actor and the character. Mm-hmm. And if you start blurring those lines, then the actor starts behaving. And that's where we run into issues.
0: Oh, that makes right. sense. That makes it moves sense. from acting into like real life, right? Yeah. I'm assuming most actors and actresses are not signing up to have sex on screen, right? They don't they're trying to keep that separate and it's I have to go through these motions because this is what the character requires, but I don't I don't want to experience that on an emotional level.
2: Yeah, I mean it's making sure like they're safe, that you know there's nudity riders and also like um barriers, you know, co- like working with costuming and making sure that there's barriers and You know, making sure the sets are closed and and all that. So I'm excited about it. I feel like this is the job for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's also making sure, you know, that the power dynamic is kept in check because that's the deal is like a lot of actors – they're in a culture of yes and, right? Like that's the theater world is yes and. um, But when it comes to this kind of stuff, like where are you gonna be pushed where you maybe don't wanna be pushed or say yes to something that, like we were just talking about, our body is saying no, but we're saying yes because we're like, we need to keep this job and we need to get hired again and I don't wanna be difficult, you know? So that's making sure like people are feeling comfortable exploring their boundaries, right? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And it's certainly easier for someone to say to you, you know, quietly off to the side, I am just not feeling right about this than to say it to someone who's like, could fire you or make you do it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Or you're like, you'll you'll never work in this town again, or, you know, or the directors are, so there's always stunt coordinators, right? So, Mm -hmm. but there's hasn't always been this, which is yeah bonkers to me, but I'm happy that it is happening now. And that's, yeah, that's awesome. That yeah. is an
1: awesome position. It's needed and you'd be perfect for it.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, amazing.
0: What advice do you have for someone who is considering burlesque or is feeling uncomfortable with their body or is, or is going through a shift or, or just sort of like I don't know much about my sexuality and my sensuality. What advice would you give for someone who's like, I think I'm ready to learn more or to think more or to tackle some of these lifelong challenges that I've been, you know, dealing with, but I want to like really move to wholeness, like you were saying.
2: Yeah. Well, the good news is, is that there is so much out there. There are so many resources and different ways to find them. Um, I, what I want, people to be wary of are those that, you know, you've heard of toxic positivity, right? You can do that with sexuality and pleasure and all that as well. And to me, that feels really gross. Like you're almost shaming people into, um, not being sexual enough or having enough Mm -hmm. pleasure. And I, that's like, okay, that's the opposite of (laughs) what we need to be doing. Yeah. Okay. So, For me personally, I like uh, reading. I have bought so many books in this pandemic. Whoa, Um, so I love reading and taking notes. And I, for me, like knowledge is empowering. And I mean, that's something that that works for me because it's like that book that we were talking about, Come As You Are, um, I think that really is a great place to start to feel like you're not some strange weirdo, right? That we all have these different levels uh, within us that change throughout our lives. Um, as far as connecting to your body, being with yourself. And I know we can say, oh, it's we don't have time. We don't have time. We're so busy. We don't have time, right? That's like number one excuse. But what if you started by putting your lotion on after the shower in a very intentional way. What, how much time would that take? Not very much, you're gonna do it anyway. So what if you watched your hand caress your body? What if you tuned into that sensation? And start small. We don't have to jump into this. You know, we don't have to bite it all at once. Like, have a taste, see how you feel. Take your time. Be patient. As I teach my students, mastery is a pursuit. It is not a one and done thing. There is always more to learn, there's always more growth available. So, research, body scientist, explore, observe without judgment.
0: I know Kosha loves it, but I do love the metaphor and the sort of the mental imagery of being a body scientist um, in the same way that's like, oh, you're going to try something, you eat something you've never eaten before. If I like it, you might not like it. You're not a bad person because you didn't like the thing that was in front of you. Yeah, it, the, It's the same way, I think, with our sensuality and our sexuality, which is try it a little bit. If you don't like it, that's information, that's feedback. Okay, I don't yeah. like this, maybe I might like that. Maybe I'm comfortable comfortable in this situation, not in that. You're not gonna judge yourself for not liking a certain food that's put on the table. You shouldn't also judge yourself because you don't like a certain touch. You know, you don't want to do X or you wanna do more of X, whatever that is. Um, that there, That we can approach that with some curiosity rather than with a bunch of like, am I bad or good? Is this wrong or right? Judgment,
1: right. Yeah, yep. Well, that was amazing.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) And I I like the patience piece too. Like, you know, people are like, well, I'm ready to learn about my sensuality. And like, that didn't work. And so it's like, you (laughs) know, just we want this immediacy in results, but research doesn't work like that. As a body scientist, to take it, in that way, if we just came up with the answers tomorrow, you would also say we didn't do that right. Yeah. You need to like take the time to get all your data points. Um, so the last question is is kind of fun. We talk about it with everybody. It's it's a term called familect and it's it's in linguistics. Family varietals of words and language. So, do you have anything like it? it could be with your family. It could be with your husband. Or in the burlesque world, are there words? That you use that only you guys would understand that, like, nobody else would get if you said it to each other.
2: (laughs) I mean, when I think about this, I think about like the pet names that I call him. Is that does that work or no? Okay. I mean, they don't make any sense. I mean, if you call him like honey, then no, No, it doesn't work. I call him Boomba and I call him like Boomba Loomba. Like, what does that even mean? I don't know. Yeah, his name is Frankie, so it doesn't even make not any even, sense. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Now, does he does Frankie call you something? Um, he's kind of co opted, Boomba. <laughs> He'll call me like uh, puddles. Um, okay, <laughs>
0: that's not exact. That is nowhere where I thought it was going to go.
2: That does not sound good. If we're you know if we're sitting on the couch. And he gets up, then I will like puddle into his spot wow. and then he won't have a spot anymore. Um That's cute. That's very cute. But it's also <laughs>
1: not where most people's minds will go. If you're like, me puddles. Yeah. he
2: does he does have a saying, if I ask him if he wants something, he'll say like, Does the Pope shit in the woods? <laughs> like no. the answer, no. The Pope does not shit in the woods. <laughs> So he doesn't want something? <laughs> I think it's a combination of, does the Pope wear a funny hat and does he bear shit in the woods? <laughs> so,
0: yeah, that is definitely, that yeah. is definitely family which you understand what that means. But if he said that to someone else, the answer would be like, no. No, but, but you yeah. have to think about it
1: first because it sounds like two different things. So you'd be like, wait, yeah, oh, oh I don't yeah. think he I've has. actually
2: never thought about it until just now. I'm just, I'm just like, yeah, OK.
1: And that's what's kind of cool about asking about the Fe act is that like people are like, "No, we don't do that. every family does that
2: yeah I, I mean if if something if he asks me something and it doesn't matter to me it'll I'll say sixty dozen <laughs> there
1: you go see that's a instead of six of the one, one half of half, the, yeah, half half yeah. A dozen I'm just okay. like
2: sixty dozen." <laughs>
1: Okay. Yeah. See, and that, that's, see, I love this because it always, people are like, oh no, I do have this and this and this. And then you suddenly have like 20 of them. Well, and it, but the other thing is that
0: nobody's really thinking about that until someone says, what do you say in your family that nobody else would understand? Because you don't actually think about what other people might say in their families that you would never understand if you heard it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Oh, so I'm so sad that we have to let you go because this has been le- the so fastest two hours. Yeah. First of all, it's so lovely to see you again. So good to see you. And, and not in you. your Instagram, and you do look as hot and sexy as your Instagram. So <laughs> I don't think that that's not true. But um, but it, this has been so lovely, and you are so wonderful, and you're doing you're doing work that is truly so important. Thank you. Not just the dancing, but the teaching.
2: Yeah, you know, and, and I'm the, the very well. passionate about it. It's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, and a
0: and a much needed message. So thank you.
2: Thank absolutely, you.
1: we have loved this. We will yeah. talk to you. I will talk to you very very soon, and please do come back.
2: Yes, absolutely. Bye, Take sweetheart. care. Bye. Bye.